Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, so when you're ready, let's get underway. Okay, let's go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Dylan Grice. He's a partner at Calderwood Capital. You've been reading Dylan's work for more than a decade. I've loved it. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Dylan. How are you doing? Hi, Toby. I'm good, thanks. Uh, tell me a little bit about Calderwood Capital. Calderwood Capital is, um, um, I suppose it's quite an unusual startup because that's what it is. Um, it's an unusual business because we, we, we are, um, uh, we are uh, a research business um, and we're also uh, an asset management business. So we are aiming to launch um, our first hedge fund in um, May of this year. And so we are kind of going through the, the, the final stages of that, um, and which includes kind of test marketing and, um, uh, and, and stuff. Um, we are hoping that that will be, uh, we will start, we'll bootstrap it with our own capital um, and then some capital um, of uh, friends and family um, and uh, just kind of get the thing on the road. And um, I think next year we'll aim to get some traction um, uh, with that, um, you know, we'll then roll that out and, and, and try and raise uh, money from, um, you know, um, from a wider circle. Um, but the research, I suppose, you know, that, there's nothing unusual about that. I suppose what's unusual is that um, uh, the, the the kind of nature of the of the, of the business. Uh, as I said, we I think it's quite common for kind of hedge funds and asset managers to publish research and get that research away for free. Um, we are actually not doing that. Our research is a standalone. Uh, business um, and that's the popular that, delusions that's popular delusions that's the which is what i used to write when i was at salt gen it was well it was the, it was the title um, of what i used to write at salt gen but i think that you know that's that that was obviously you know some time ago now and, and um the, the world has changed i've changed so it's, it's more of an evolution i think so. let, let me let me give everybody some more background so i i everybody will remember uh james montier wrote popular delusions at Sock Gen left for GMO, and I think so I w- he, wrote, he wrote Mind Matters. Just to, so I'm his, sorry, his, I'm he was s- big into obviously behavioral finance, and so his his um, uh, kind of research header was 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 Mind Matters. So sorry, I'm sorry I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that was. He, he'll, he'll kill me if, if, <laughs> if, I if I don't put that in. I re- I read his stuff when he was at Dresden Klein Ward, um, yeah. and I because he wrote this great little review of the little book that beats the market called The Little Note That Beats the Market. And he pointed out yeah. in that that it was the the value factor that drove all of the returns and not yeah. the quality factor that drove the returns, which I found fascinating. And then mm-hmm. when he left, you took... So I started reading Popular Delusions. It was one of the most fascinating uh, reads at the time. It was so hard to get uh, your hands on a copy of it. And I finally reached out to you and, and you very kindly put me on your own private distribution list. So I... I loved reading it, and then you sort of disappeared for a while. And I, I just, yeah. I thought, I thought of you about a year ago, and I thought, I wonder where Dylan is. And I reached out to you through LinkedIn, 
and then you popped up on Real Vision as well. And so I, I just wondered, what have you been doing in the in the interim? Well, that's, yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, I, I had a great time at Salt Gen, a really fantastic time. I know banking is a kind of funny business and it gets a bad press. And, I, you know, I understand why I spent enough time in, in, in banks in, in my time. But, um, you know, Zogjen was was different. It was a, a a really kind of unusual place. It really allowed us to, to breathe, and they allowed um, Albert and me to um, you know a, a lot of creative license, um, and and you know and it worked for them as well. You know we were successful for them, uh, so it was um, it was a, it was a brilliant kind of phase. But uh, it, it was ultimately it was it was just writing, you know it was writing and it was commentating and. You know, it was just it was just words, 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 more words, and there wasn't really um, there wasn't any action. You know, there was there was no there was no acting. You know, there's no doing anything, right. no decision making. It was just writing, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all, by the way. But it's not it's not really me. Um, I think you know I've, I've been a prop trader for um, for five years before um, um, I, I, I took over from James um, and teamed up with Albert. Um, I you know I. I I think words without action, it's, it's kind of like sex without love. You know, you, you do need the two things to, 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 um, to, to kind of to, to, to feel more kind of whole. And um, after that kind of period at Top Gen, I, you know, I, I was really, really, um, I was becoming very frustrated with, with, with not actually doing anything other than commentating. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I, I kind of took the plunge and... Um, uh, ended up in um, uh, you know a, a slight detour, but I came to um, Switzerland where I still am, and um, I um, uh, was uh, I, I was hired by a, a family office. Um, so family offices are obviously typically quite secretive. Um, uh, this was a, a Swiss family office, so it was like kind Doubly of secretive, secretive. squared. Right. You know? um, so they kind of didn't want any. They didn't want any profile at all, um, which which is actually fine with with me. You know, I, I kind of wanted they, they wanted me to, uh, to 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 build a business. They wanted me to build um, initially an equity business, but it then um, um, became the whole kind of liquid uh, allocation, uh, and and that's exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, I didn't really want to be kind of doing that in the public gaze or in the public glare. Um, so it was almost like. You know the, the complete opposite of uh, of top gen. You know where I was talking a lot but not doing anything. Um, when I was at uh, Calibrium, I was I was doing an awful lot without really talking much about it. Um, so I mean to kind of bring it back to where you started with Coldwood Capital. You know Coldwood Capital, the research business and the hedge fund is actually kind of hybrid of both. It's it's a, it's it's much more about getting that getting my own particular balance right. So I still get to write, but I actually get to, to build portfolio as well. What's the folk, what's what's the strategy at, at Calderwood? What's the hedge fund strategy? So we're um, we're actually <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. Actually, it's it's, um, uh, uh, it's been a very kind of um, strange route to to, to hear, uh, but um, we are um, getting up a fund of funds, um, multi strat, multi manager fund of funds. So uh, you know the, the reason I kind of I, I a part of me kind of I still kind of double take what who the hell does fund the funds these days, you know? Um, That's a very contrarian play. Well, it's, it's you know it's been a very interesting 
uh, time. You know, it, it was a very interesting experience at, at, in the family office. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I learned a number of things. And uh, I, I learned that um, allocation is, is, so asset allocation is, is, is much more kind of um, in keeping with my own kind of investing personality. Um, you know, one of the kind of, um, I, I did feel slightly discom- dis, um, uh, uncomfortable, sorry, as a, as a commentator, especially a macro commentator, because macro commentators know everything. You know, they know exactly what Trump means when he tweets this, or they know exactly what the Chinese are going to do, you know, in response. And, you know, they know someone who knows someone who, you know, has got the inside line on Iran. And, you know, so there's lots of people who just know everything. And, and I kind of always felt that I don't really know anything. Uh, I certainly don't know very much. Um, and so there was almost, there was always a very kind of defensive um, kind of foundation, you know, a, a defensive kind of philosophical um, um, aspect to my own thinking. And I found that that kind of really expressed itself I think very powerfully um, in a fund of funds when you can really go literally wherever you want. You know, if you're an equity manager, then you're an equity. That's fine, right? And you use different types of equities. But, you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of, um, you're in a straitjacket. When, you, when you're allocating, you have, uh, you know, and I spent a lot of time thinking about how to hedge tails and how to hedge market events. And actually, if you've got proper diversification, you don't need any of that. That's, it's a free hedge. You know, it's free. Um, and um, you can only really express that type of um, uh, ignorance, if you like, you know, building a, a portfolio which is robust to ignorance. You can only do that if you're willing to, to kind of explore radically different um, um, risk premium, um, income streams, cash, whatever you want to call them, return streams. So you won't that- have any tail hedging or any crisis sulfur in the, in the portfolio? Mm-hmm. You know, the, Mandy will be as, 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 as wide as, as possible, so you never say never. But um, generally speaking, no. You know, I think uh, if you can get some cheap convexity in the portfolio, it's just a phenomenally valuable thing if you think about it because, you know, you've got insurance. You know, you're, what you want is to insure your portfolio against really, really bad stuff happening. Uh, and typically you have to pay for that. You know, you don't, you don't get free house insurance. You know, you don't get free life insurance. You don't, you don't get free market right. insurance. So, so is it worth paying that? And typically, I think the answer is no. Um, I think the far better approach is to say, well, okay, why don't we just say equity risk? Yes, we want equity risk in the portfolio. And yes, equity risk is a, is a, 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 a valuable premium to, to harvest over the years. But no, equity risk is not going to dominate the entire portfolio. There's, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things that we can do. And if, they, if they're truly uncorrelated, then, you know, if the world goes to hell in a handbasket, yes, your equity risk is going to blow up. But, you know, maybe your kind of longevity risk is, is going to offset or maybe your your catastrophe risk is, is going to offset that. Or, you know, so as I said, this, the, the, the real kind of, the holy grail of portfolio robustness becomes much more, Alive when you can actually allocate to, to, to different managers. So that was the that was the starting point, really, the idea. The other thing was that um, I just felt I'm trying to kind of build um, the, the the team um, at uh, Equilibrium. Something we really struggled to find was um, was good fund analysts. You know, it was really really impossible, and um, we kind of um, uh, well, I I kind of had this kind of epiphany this light bulb moment um which was that people who 
people who love investing, you know, they, they, want, they, they want to be the, the guy leading the, the venture, right? right? Or they want to be the, the guy, you know, actually kind of picking up the pieces in a court case and, and, and doing the kind of distressed investment. You know, or they want to be the, the one with the macro call betting against some country's exchange rate. They want to be that, you know, on the front line pulling the trigger. They don't want to be a fund analyst. You know, they don't, they don't want to right. be that. You know, it's almost like choosing quite, um, you know, it's, it's, there's not a huge amount of competition, <laughs> right? Um, so that's just another aspect to it. So it's global macro, but it's executed through a fund of funds so that the guys who are at the the guys who are making the investment decisions at the pointy end are running their own businesses, so it's sort of distributed global macro, something like that. I would, yeah. I mean, I I, I, I wouldn't call it global decentralized. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, very much kind of decentralized. Um, I think, um, I mean, macro allocation is a kind of branch of macro, but I I, I call it a no nothing macro. Um, it's a kind of macro for dumb people, um, uh, and you know. It, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of what it is. I, I I found it was just much more in keeping with my own kind of philosophical bent. Um, and the, I, I guess the other thing I discovered at Columbrium, you know, the the, 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 the obvious headwind with um, uh, with with hedge funds uh, alternative managers is, is the fees. Um, but I kind of realised that this kind of move to you know low fees, you know um, at you know, as an absolute priority, I, I think that it's actually not, you know, it doesn't really work like that. It's not as, I mean, yes, all else equal, you want lower fees, but frankly, um, uh, there is such a thing as getting value for fees, right? And it's, it's not it's not the same. Low fees are not always, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not always getting value for your low fees, you know, in the way that you're not always getting value when you buy a cheap stock, you know, you might still be overpaying. Um, my um, partner is, uh, is at Rentec, actually. Um, he used to run um, uh, Jim Simon's uh, London office. And, um, you know, the medallion fund charged, I think it was 5 and 45. Um, and uh, it's Robert, still outperformed. Well, he still generated a net return of nearly 40%. So people care about net return. If you, if you, if you were allowed to invest in a fund that gave you a net return of 40%, you wouldn't really care that you're paying five and forty-five. Right. So if you turn that down because oh the fees are too high, frankly you're an idiot. So <laughs> I think that you know this was also a kind of realization. You know, um, I think the fund to funds model very very discredited because I think it's typically not done properly. Um, and you know, this could be famous last words, but our um, kind of um, uh, our intention is actually to do it properly. Well, how do you do it properly? Like I said, you have, you have to be very willing to embrace very unusual line items, right? So, a fund of, you know, if you're a kind of fund of funds and, you know, you, you've got, um, uh, say, 60% equities, you know, or 50% equities, and you know, 30% hedge funds, and kind of maybe 20% bonds, and your hedge funds are basically long-short equities and credit uh, funds, then you basically have an equity portfolio, right? That's what it is. Now, even if you all right, forget the long run equities. Suppose you actually we'll have long short equities. We'll have long short um, uh, credit. We'll have long short equity. We'll have some macro, and we'll have some CTA. What you basically got is an equity portfolio, right? Because long short equity is just 
equity. Longshore credit is, you know, very, very kind of, um, uh, you, you take on a lot of recession risk. Um, CTAs should be a diversifier, but what typically happens, certainly the, the, um, the month that any kind of crash happens, your CTAs get wiped out as well because of the, they're on the wrong side of the trend, almost uh, inevitably. Um, and macro also, kind of, macro is a, set, uh, a slightly different thing, um, but all too often you find that macro managers are they're basically long carries. And that, as a strategy, gets hot when, the, when, when right. it's a risk-off environment. So you end up with a portfolio which goes up on when it's risk-on and goes down when it's risk-off. And well, why don't you just have an equity portfolio? What's, what's the value you're really adding with um, um, with, with that particular allocation? Um, and then, you know, so, so I think that's one reason why um, why it doesn't work. You know, get comfortable with just very, very unusual line items. It's been a challenging period, I think, for asset allocation in particular, because uh, there's so little yield in bonds and where they're traditionally viewed as a safe haven asset that should sort of go up a little bit when equity indices collapse. They're sort of to that point where they're very, very sensitive. So a lot of guys have been looking at that, the yield in, in, in debt and say, or particularly in like US treasuries, for example, and saying that's a bad place to be. But it's been one of the best trades over the last five years, even though it's been a common refrain so what do you what do you do when you're when the potentially one of the sources of hedge in the book is going to trade probably more like equity well again it depends on how um well, well it's actually i'm not sure it, there was a lot in that um i think to to kind of work backwards um there is still a, a, a case for the kind of diversification uh, benefits of, um, of, of, of of government bonds, even in this kind of crappy um, yield, because it, it's not about. And again, I think this is a mistake that that the people make when they're talking about portfolio construction. You kind of you typically want you want high return stuff in your portfolio, right? Um, and um, and obviously, when something is returning basically zero or one or two percent. Um, it's difficult to see why you would have that in your portfolio. It's such a, you know, it, there's no juice left in this anymore. Why would we want that? There's just a lot of downside and not a lot of upside. Anyway, I, I understand. Um, but it's, I think it's not the right way to look at it. The, the right way from a portfolio construction is um, what does this bring to the portfolio? Right? Can, is, is the portfolio better with this or without it? And the fact is that um, a portfolio. Which which is which has that genuine kind of rally into risk off, um, which you get. We only get with, and I hate this phrase, risk free. But you only get it with risk free duration. Um, that typically improves the portfolio, even with virtually zero um, at yield. You know, if you actually kind of run simulations, kind of, you know, a mean variance kind of optimizer, and you um, ask it how much government bonds uh, it wants. The answer will always be non-zero because that's kind of diversification uh, benefit. So even at these crappy um, uh, yields, there is an you know it's not as dumb as it sounds um, to, to to include them in a the portfolio. We wouldn't have any in our portfolio, by the way. We wouldn't have any bond managers in our portfolio because we, we think we can do far better than that, right? But some people are not willing to kind of explore um, you know very kind of weird asset managers. Some people are not very willing to. Um, I think take the time to understand complex uh, strategies, um, I, you know, for very very good reasons. Um, 
you know, if you, if you grow up with a complex strategy, you, you know, you're sitting in a pension fund, you've allocated to some kind of credit manager, they don't really understand what he's doing, but his returns are good for the last three years. So he says, hey, clever, so I'll allocate to him. And then before you know what he's doing, 70%, you, know, you get fired. You get fired for that. There's not really any upside to you allocating to, to someone like that um, uh, uh, any more than there was there's any upside, you know, when, when, um, uh, when was it Peter Lynch when he went up on Wall Street? He yeah. said, you know, you never get fired for, um, for, for, for blowing an IBM, right? You know, if you want some kind of small cap, you know, micro cap stock um, that, uh, that, 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 that dumps 50% one day, you know, they, they, kind of, they don't ask what's wrong with the stock, they ask what's wrong with you. Why don't you go on IBM? And, and I, I think an allocation is, is, is kind of similar. You know, you don't get fired for allocating to Brevin Howard, right? Um, but the real kind of juice is actually in these kind of, yeah, I think when you go more off the run. Um, so if people aren't willing to go off the run, and maybe if they're not willing to do that work, um, if they're not willing to get comfortable with sometimes incredibly esoteric opportunities, um, then I, I, I think that you default vanilla position of government bonds, uh, you know, it's, and I would mix that with some gold. It's not as dumb as it sounds. That's a good segue into a discussion on your philosophy. I, I've read the you sent me through the updated uh, popular delusions, and I, I, I sense that your philosophy is sort of an Austrian economics um, approach to it. It's been a rough decade for folks who've got a hard money Austrian view yeah. of the world. What, why do why do you think that is, and do you think that's going to change? Do you think that Austrian economics has a place in the in the in the investment world? I mean, it's such a great question. You know, I, I, um, I mean, so, so yes, I do love Austrian economics. Um, I, I, I actually slightly have an issue with the with the adjective, right? For me, it's just economics. <laughs> that's that's actually you know, economics took a very strange turn. Um, maybe so I think Keynes. it started. Not Keynes wasn't that new. You know, um, I think it really. Um, I think um, that uh, you know you saw the um, in, in, in France you saw this kind of this credit bubble, this kind of hyperinflation um, during the Mississippi bubble, um, and um, it was uh, it was John Law, he was a Scotsman, and um, you know he had this idea that you could increase activity um, by increasing the money supply, um, you know, which and therefore you need the only way you could do that was with with paper money, that, that, that would be elastic. And um, and so, you know, this kind of paper money craze was born. So, you know, you, a, lot of, a lot of John Law's stuff was very Keynesian. So it wasn't, I don't think Keynes was necessarily, Keynes had a lot of absolutely brilliant ideas. I, I, in my opinion, also some really dumb ones. Um, but I, I'm, not one of the, I'm not a Keynes hater at all. Um, I just feel that, um, it, I think it was with Samuelson. I think the economists, the, the kind of, Charlie Munger talked to the economists of having physics envy, yeah. and um, they, they, they really wished that it was physics. And um, you know, I actually believe <clears throat> I'm quite passionate about the idea that economics is a science, right? It's fundamentally scientific. It's fundamentally um, uh, about trying to find the order and the and the chaos. And um, I just feel that economists are really not very good scientists. Um, and this whole kind of physics envy thing is, is really just a reflection of how bad they are as scientists. 
I think the Austrian guys are far more kind of epistemologically honest about what they know, what they don't know. And some of the some of the some of what the Austrians were able to deduce without modern computers or um, the ability to um, to write algorithms and, and run simulations and, and see how an economy um, might work um, under different um, assumptions. These guys, you know, these guys really kind of pioneered chaos theory, for example. They, they pioneered the, the, the notion of a self-organizing system, right? Before, before it kind of, before it started to crop up. And you know, the idea of complexity, before people started to really understand what complexity was, the Austrians had already figured out that that's what an economy was. Um, and sorry, my voice is getting a bit croaky here. Um, um, Hayek was talking about the, um, the information content of pricing. Right? He was really talking about um, information theory right? and money as a, as a channel. Right? And Bornices was talking about economic calculation. These guys were talking about the economy as a, a computation machine. Right? These guys were kind of absolute pioneers long before Shannon had written his, his performance information theory. And long before complexity was a branch of mathematics, these guys were already talking about it. So it's a long-winded answer, but, but, but yes, I really do feel um, that um, for some reason it's seen as this loony fringe movement. And I think if you read it, it's, these guys are absolutely right. Of course they're right. Um, so on that side, that's easy. How do you make money out of it? How do you invest with it? So I think that's, that's a totally different thing. And I think that one of the problems you get with a lot of Austrians is that they have a very clear idea about how the economy should be and, and how the world should be. And um, investing is not like that. Investing is about the way the world is. Um, and so Austrians always always want to buy gold. They're always bullish of gold. You know, they were bullish of gold in the 80s, you know, when you entered in a 20-year bear market. And the bull market was just around the corner. How many Austrians sold? Right, in 2014. By the way, I didn't. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not kind of I'm pointing the finger. Um, what I did do was reflect on why I didn't. <laughs> but you know, I, so I, I think the Austrian economics. I, I'm not really sure it necessarily goes with investing um, because the world is the way it is, not the way you want it to be. Uh, that's a nice segue into one of the articles that I liked in your in your more recent popular delusions was discussing the anatomy of a forecast error. Can you perhaps um, describe for folks what that article was about and, and what the conclusion that we, we can draw from it is? Um, well, I... Um, where to start? You know, I um, had been... You go back 10 years, when I was at Solgen, and um, you know, like a lot of people, I was um, really, I really didn't like QE, uh, hated QE, and um, uh, didn't really like the precedent that, that it set. Uh, and um, and I, I kind of, I kind of felt that this was this was going to end badly, right? This was a mistake, and that they shouldn't be doing it. Uh, I really, really hated QE. Uh, and um, I also really, really don't, hate, you know, I really hated it. Hate is a strong word, but yeah, I kind of um, don't really like economists at all. Uh, you know, as you probably gathered already. So really, really not a fan of, of the discipline. As I said, I think they're very, very poor scientists. 
Um, so you've got these kind of economists who are running around. In my, to my way of thinking at the time, I actually still, by the way, but um, these guys had just blown up the financial system, right? These guys, the whole thing was, 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 was largely um, caused by their incompetence um, and them really not knowing what they were doing. You know, Ben Bernanke very famously in 2006 said that there was, there was, no, there was no housing bubble. He even went further and said there couldn't be a housing bubble because, you know, house prices had, had never fallen. It never, it never happened before. Therefore, it could never happen. So this is just like kind of, you know, logical error. We've been 101, right? Just such a stupid thing. And, and I just couldn't really believe that these guys got away with it, you know? Like, um, so the, the latest thing was QE, and I, and I hated it. And um, I also, you know, one of my kind of um, little kind of um, hobbies is, um, is financial history. And uh, I, I really kind of, I, I love financial history. I had, um, I do know something about hyperinflation and and and, um, uh, and, and bubbles and, and stuff like that. And I, I kind of just joined the two things together and said, you know, this is this is how hyperinflation starts. Now, and I I did explore hyperinflation, historic hyperinflation, and how they work. And I kind of came to the conclusion that. You know, it, it wasn't. It was very unlikely we were going to see any kind of hyperinflation. Um, uh, although I thought that the, the, the main candidate, I think actually right here somewhere, that I thought that the near term candidate was Venezuela. Um, um, but the, uh, the 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 one that, that bothered me the most was Japan. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're completely kind of monetizing their um, their debt. Uh, but uh, I, I kind of felt. It doesn't have to be hyperinflation, you know, for, for this to be an inflation problem. Right. Um, and what's what's going to happen, you know, like, for example, the 70s was an inflation problem, right? It wasn't hyperinflation, but, you know, you had double debit inflation, but it, was, it, it affected the, the investment landscape um, meaningfully. So I kind of thought that this was where we were going. And, um, and I kind of said, um, in, uh, it was actually 2010, uh, in ten years' time, we will see the we will see the the, the white of, of of inflation's eyes, right? We we will we will see a nascent inflation problem. So this was a very kind of firm um, uh, prediction that I made. Uh, within ten years, we will see an inflation problem, and uh, here we are, ten years later, and I think that thirty-year break-even um, uh, inflation rates are like uh, fifty basis points below where they <laughs> when I when I made my prediction. So. You know, I, I guess that just set off a kind of, and also just kind of speaking to some some friends of mine who agreed with me and also thought that inflation was 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 clearly going to be the next big issue. Um, so I said, well, what did I get wrong? Why did I get that one so wrong? And um, uh, and and so that that piece was really just uh, me trying to kind of unpick where where I went wrong. And um, I think that the the, the 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 main area I went wrong is. Um, which is this is something that, that, that a lot of people do, uh, but uh, I, I guess the, 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 there were three things really. One, I just fell in love with, with 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 the idea. I fell in love with the theory. Right. I really enjoyed learning about hyperinflation. I really enjoyed seeing the, the and the closer I looked, the more obvious the parallels became. Um, and 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 I just enjoyed that process. Right. So I liked my own theory. Right. I think the in academia they have this. Um, um, I, I think they have some phrase for it. It's something like, like theories are kind of like, you know, like toothbrushes. 
you know, you've got to have your own one, right? And everyone, and everyone only uses their own one, and everyone loves their own one. So I kind of fell into that trap, kind of um, without realising it. Another trap I fell into was um, that, and this was a big one, and uh, and this is something that I'm much more wary of today. But uh, I really felt that, I, I, you know, I would write. You know, Ben Bernanke is a clown, but then are clowns. You know, these guys are in a day, and all they're doing. And this just really kind of struck a chord, right? And people just love this. It's basically coming from a quite a big kind of investment bank, you know. So it suddenly, it kind of went, I, I, at the time, I think it was it was, um, it was was quite a kind of unusual thing for, for a bank to say. And, um, and so it kind of went viral, and I got a following. And so I had a following of people who, who loved to hear me tell this stuff. And before I knew it, I, I, again, I didn't realize this until years later, but I was actually playing to the crowd. And uh, I started, to, you know, and again, this is why, and, you know, without mentioning any names, but, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it. Investors, when they go public with a thesis, it's a disaster, right? Keep it to yourself. Shut up, <laughs> right? Because, you know, it just becomes so much more difficult to change your view when you've got a bunch of followers who are only following you because of that view. Um, and I think actually a, 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 a really kind of um, uh, interesting, so tough uh, example of, of, of this was, was a, a friend of mine, uh, Hugh Hendry, who used to, who, who called the, um, the 2008 crash, right. made a lot of money out of it. Um, and, um, uh, did really, really well for his investors and was seen as the bearish guy. He was seen, and he was all over TV. He was all over Bloomberg. He was on very high-profile news shows in the UK. And some of, some of those, um, some of the footage of those shows went kind of viral because he was lambasting. It was great. Guys, like, it's cathartic. It was, it, was, it was wonderful. You know, he's like, finally, someone with a brain is on our side and he's actually calling out these frauds for what they are. And, uh, and you know, so far so good. But he was he was now seen as that bearish guy when he turned bullish. Right. A few years later, all his investors deserted him, and they said, "Well, what's the point in you know what's the point in you? You're you a hedge. You were a portfolio hedge. You know, if you're going to be, so this is the danger. You have to be very careful what kind of followers you get. Right. You know, if you get followers who are following you because of, because of this particular view, then that then impairs your ability to, to update your view as kind of facts come in. And I think that if you're investing, you, you, you try to get the world right, then it's really just a continuous process of, of, of updating and you're, 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 you're not really doing yourself any favors. This was another thing that, 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 that happened to me. Um, the main one that I really should have seen, because I, because I, see, I, I see often in, in other arguments, I see in, in, in other um, um, discourse, and um, and it, I find it very low quality. It's a, it's, it's, it's very famous um, low quality um, uh, uh, um, tool of arguing, which is ad hominem, right? Forget the argument, just attack the person, right? And you see it when you do see it, you just kind of think, ah, did you just do that? Did you really? Oh, that's a terrible thing. You that's, a, that's you just lost the argument. You know, you're attacking the person. You're Donald Trump does it all the time, right? So I think it's just a very low quality thing uh, to do. And again, I didn't realize at the time, but I was doing that. And in particular, I was allowing my dislike of economists and particularly guys like Larry Summers 
Paul Krugman, all these kind of, I just think they're phonies. I don't really think they know as much as, as, as they say they do. Um, but these guys were all worried about deflation. So I just kind of thought, well, you know, if, if Paul Krugman's worried about deflation, then obviously I'm going to worry about inflation, right? Which, you know, again, it gets a few laughs from your audience, but that's no way to, to update. That, that's not an argument. You know, that's just dumb. So this is another mistake that, that, that I made. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they, that, they were the they were the, the various, they were the main categories of, of errors. It's a very honest assessment because I think you could have said, well, inflation isn't counted properly by CPI statistics. It's probably understated. Hedonic adjustments are sort of yeah. nonsense. And then you could have also said, well, there's that Austrian view that inflation doesn't necessarily run through the CPI. It could run through asset prices. Right. There's a pretty strong argument that we've seen some pretty material inflation in asset prices. That's true. That's absolutely true. I I, I, I really um, I, I really do believe that, and uh, I I, uh, I think that you can even measure it, right? You can I think you can kind of measure just to, to what extent asset prices are overly inflated. Um, uh, so I, I I you know in terms of whether or not CPI is correct to measure through the hedonic adjustments, maybe there's some truth to that, but I, I'm not so sure about I'm not so sure on that argument. I've seen estimates. I can't remember the guy's name. He said that inflation actually runs at ten percent. That's the shadow stats. John, yeah, John I Williams, just, I think. Yeah, I, I just have a, have definitely believing that actually the economy is contracted by, you know, because if, if, if inflation has been ten percent, then I think that real GDP growth must have been kind of minus, you know, five or six or something. I just I, I, that's not what I see. So I, I, I you know. I, that's just a question mark. I don't know. I don't know the right way to measure it. And like, but the point is, inflation is an estimate. It's, a, it's ultimately a judgment, right? It's not actually measurable. And when you try and build in asset prices and equity prices, you just find that this is all kind of one. It's conceptually, it's not measurable. And this is obviously, this is the Austrian perspective. This isn't, this is, it's dumb. It's absolutely dumb to even try and measure something like, um, something as, as, as complex as, uh, a kind of artificial monetary disturbance because always prices going up and prices going down in different parts of the economy. But a drain, a, a, you know, a, a, an economy-wide increase in, in prices is—it's it, very, you know, any increase in the money supply will trigger some kind of change in relative prices somewhere because it must do as soon as people start spending that money supply increase. Therefore, that's inflation. Now, whether it shows up in the CPI or something, we, we don't really know, right? That's a, and that's so that's the kind of Austrian perspective and that's the whole folly of central banks targeting this made up number in the first place it's just bloody stupid right but but that's what they do and you know to, to go back to your point yes i could have said all of those things and, and i ha- and I, I, I believe them but that wasn't my prediction my prediction was we were going to see cpi inflation right we were going to see it within right. 10 years so you know there's no point in trying to wriggle out all of it you know because you could also say well oh it just hasn't happened yet you know, but that's then that's not a forecast. You know, if I if you see, you know, if you see what's what, what's, your, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow, you say tomorrow, right? You're, you're specifying <laughs> a time. You know, a forecast has to has to have some kind of time dimension. You can't just keep saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just waiting for it to happen." I'm definitely right. It's just, you know, my time is wrong. It's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen the day after. So I, you know, I, I didn't want. I don't think that you should wriggle out of things that way either. My um, forecast was very, very specific. It was about CPI inflation, and it was within 10 years. 
And I think I even said it would be more than 4%. So wrong on all three counts. And I think it's, um, you know, it's very, I think it's, it, was a bit, it was a very constructive thing for me personally to kind of, you know, rub my own nose in that and say, right, well, what, what did I get wrong? How can I not do that one again? I think there's been a lot of introspecting by Austrian economists and value investors, particularly over the last <laughs> decade or so. Yeah. One of the interesting things uh, I, I watched, MIT had this billion price project. Did you ever follow that? Where they they had this idea that they'd track all of these different prices through the economy, and that would create this CPI. When that first yeah. launched, it seemed to be tracking well above official yeah. numbers. And MIT's yeah. take on that was, well, our, our calculation must be wrong. We'll go back in and we'll, we'll we'll make some changes to that. And I just I was reminded of it as I was reading your. You, you've got that great story about Richard Feynman. Uh, and then uh, updating the, I think, was it Planck's constant? One of the, in, in your popular oh, delusions? Am I getting the wrong? Yeah, that's, no, that's right. No, it wasn't Planck's constant. Um, this was, I think this was, it was something to do with um, when they were measuring the charge of an electron. And the original guy who did the experiment, I forget his name now, he was a Nobel Prize winner. Um, uh, and uh, he kind of got it basically right, but not quite right. And it's because the the way he measured this charge, he'd used um, some kind of um, apparatus, I think he'd used some oil, and he hadn't quite got the viscosity of the oil right, and that was slightly biasing his, his results. And then what happened over the next kind of, you know, 20 years was that when people tried to, when, when physicists tried to replicate um, his measurements, um, it, they were coming up with a different answer, <laughs> so they kept they'd find a way to lower it so that it was it was it was you know it was like his original answer, <laughs> and this kept happening until someone realised the the, the the mistake. You know, no one actually wanted to stand up and say, "No, I think that's I think that's wrong. <laughs> Why is that wrong? Let's get to the bottom of it." So Richard Richard Feynman has a. There's another great experiment in there where somebody and I, this is something I follow pretty closely the replication crisis I'm kind of interested yeah. in yeah. in it because there's so many things that have been particularly in the social in psychological studies and social science many things but also in, in medical uh, in medicine yeah. and, and and various other things like that there have been these findings that they were unable to replicate and Feynman makes a great point that you sh there may be there may be an incentive not to to get those replications yeah. Not, not to try and replicate it at all. But then he yeah. says, um, if you're going to conduct an experiment where you're changing some uh, part of the experiment, you need to, uh, first of all, you need to replicate the original experiment and then under your own conditions with your own apparatus, then go and change it. Right. I just Absolutely correct. Yeah, it's just it, the, the that you had, you included that in one of the popular delusions. It's a great, uh, great discussion on it. I don't know if you can remember the story. Yeah, and they, I mean, I mean, you just said it. I mean, this is this is this is the these are the basics of. of I mean, obviously, Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist, um, and and his his love was um, was physics, and uh, 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 his passion was physics, and his criticism. This was a speech, nineteen seventy four speech he gave at Caltech, um, and he was actually criticizing the the, the kind of academic establishment uh, for not being diligent enough with replicating other people's work. Uh, and, um, and he gave a couple of examples. I think there was a, an astrophysicist. I think there was someone else who was working on a, um, a you know, a kind of atom collider. Um, and um, uh, 
uh, in each case, when the, when when, the, when that person had 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 basically asked to replicate the the um and the the work that they were hoping to build on, um, they were told not to waste the time. They don't have the budget. They don't have the resources. You know, we don't we don't you know just it's fine the way it is. You just go on and and, and do what you were going to do. And um, so there was this pressure. There was this. There is this pressure. Simon was talking about this pressure um, that um, uh, academic institutions are under um, to um, uh, to to find something new, to generate new conclusions, new results, to find new science. Right. And um, he then, in the same speech, talked about the same kind of thing happening in psychology. And he basically gave a warning. He called it cult cargo. Um, uh, so cargo cult uh, science. Um, the cargo cults were the kind of um, the, um, uh, the Pacific Islanders who never really, and I believe that it's actually just a, a standard kind of phenomenon that anthropologists talk about, and, and it's reasonably well documented, is when you have a low-tech um, society comes into contact with a high-tech society, um, and then you know the high-tech society then disappears. So think kind of you know New World explorers, for example. You know I think some some kind of British explorers in the kind of 17th, 18th century documented the same kind of phenomenon. Um, but um, the one that Feynman talked about was the, um, the, the, um, the Pacific Islanders during the Second World War. When the Americans had come, they'd used the island as a landing base, and they'd kind of dropped their cargo, um, uh, and, um, and you know, the planes would kind of land. They made a runway. The Americans made a runway, and the planes would land, take off again. And then the war finished, and they didn't need this kind of supply um, uh, depot anymore, and so they, you know, they packed the bags and went home. And um, the, 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 um, uh, the cargo cult, um, uh, locals kind of they built a new runway, right? And they, they built a runway to make it look like the old one. And they built a control tower to look like the old one. And they built a controller to you know a, a, you know a, a kind of you know a, 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 almost like a kind of scarecrow that, that looked like the controller that actually had you know kind of bamboo shoot um, headphones, right? And a, and a bamboo shoot microphone. And so everything was replicated to look just like. Um, the, the setup that the Americans had put down, um, because the idea was, well, if, if we can make it look like what the Americans did, we'll get the cargo, right. we'll get the good stuff. And Richard Feynman was saying, if you make your science look like science, you know, you'll get the same result that the, 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 the cargo cult um, guys got, which is nothing. Right. Right? Just because it looks like the thing doesn't mean it is the thing. And um, uh, and, and effectively, he was, you know. His warning, which went, which went unheeded, was, I think, what, you know, is now known as the replication class crisis because people are not doing science. They're not doing honest inquiry. They're trying to find something new um, for the sake of it because the pressure that academic institutions are under to find something new is exactly the same kind of pressure. And this is why I find it very interesting. Exactly the same kind of pressure that financial players are under, right, to launch a fund and to demonstrate why this is such a brilliant idea, right, uh, to launch an ETF and to demonstrate why this is a, because look, we've done the back test, we've done the science, we've, we've, we've actually, um, uh, we've um, we brought in some, some academics from, you know, some Ivy League university, and they're now an advisor to our board, so we're actually, do, we're putting the science into finance, right, and we've launched an ETF each show, but no one's actually asking, well, is this science any better? Is this, is this real science? Is it real financial science or is it cargo cult science? And I think that, in my view, you know, it, 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 it's, it's cargo cult science. A lot of these, um, you know, a, a lot of these kind of um, uh, factor ETFs, a lot of these risk premium ETFs, 
uh, they're really it's it's, it's amazing how many of them are no longer working. You know, they've gone live. You know, they're right. great in the back test. They're like wonderful in the back test. Uh, but a lot of these factors, a lot of these risk premia, um, they're just not there. They're not there when you actually try and test them in the real world. Um, and the answer, I think, is because this wasn't science. This was this was cargo cult science. Uh, last question, and then I'll let you go. But it's it's sort of a bigger one. One of the and it was actually my first question, but it's taken us this long to get there. You talked about uh, a golden age in duration, a bull market in duration, and you right. think that that might be coming to an end, and then you've got some predictions for that. So what what was the golden age in duration, and what, what are the implications if that goes away? Well, so we had a, a very inflationary economy in the 1970s, um, and that was, a, that, was a, that was a global phenomenon, a widespread phenomenon. And uh, what happened was, as we know, in the 80s, 90s, noughties, and, you know, over the last 10 years, um, the um, inflation kept continuously surprising on the downside, continuously surprising on the downside. And what that did was it drove, ultimately it drove bonds um, to, to much higher levels, bond yields to lower levels, bond prices to, to, to much um, higher. And obviously, the longer the duration um, in, um, in the, um, the government bond, the better the, um, uh, the, the return. Um, one of the kind of interesting things uh, to me, that I discovered, which I wasn't fully aware of, and during this period, the um, if you go back, if you use the shallow data for the um, for the for the returns, um, uh, and by the way, this isn't uh, you, you need to do more work to make sure that this is actually the right message. I only looked at the U.S. market; that's where I had the data. But if you go to the the equity risk premium, if you like, so the excess return of equities over bonds. Um, it's something from, my, from the 1870s to the, to, to, to the um, present day, it's something like 4.3 or something, 4.4%. That's when your excess return for holding equities over bonds, right? Right. Um, since the 1980s, that risk premium has actually been about 3.6. So the equity risk premium has actually, has actually been quite low, right, during this period. Um the excess return of equities has been quite modest, right, during this period. The real action has been in the bond market. The, ex- right. the, the returns of bonds have just been absolutely fine. And of course, that carries everything with it, right? Because equities are a duration asset, right? You're right. actually, you're permanent duration, infinite duration, but they're duration assets, right? If bond yields go up, um, your NPV comes down, right? So, you know, when bond yields go up, then capitalizations will fall. Um, uh, I, 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 I think you know. I think kind of must do. Um, so this this kind of this 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 NPV uplift um, that you got into equities from, from from bonds was certainly very very pronounced. But the real bull market in equities since the eighties, um, to my mind, was 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 actually a bull market in bonds and a bull market in duration. And therefore, what you've seen over the last forty years, eighties, nineties, um, noughties, and 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 tens. Uh, you've seen this bull market in all duration assets, whether it's public equities, um, whether it's private equity, um, uh, venture equity, um, uh, government bonds, corporate bonds. All of these things have just been, um, uh, you've just been in a phenomenal, phenomenal um, uh, period of returns for these, these asset classes. And it's all been driven by government bonds. And without, you don't need to, 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 to predict a, 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 a massive inflation problem to see that, you know, the likelihood of, it's very difficult to see how that happens again, 
How do you get the same tailwind when bond yields go from 20 to 2 over 40 years, right? How do you get that kind of structural tailwind for duration assets? And the answer is you don't. So you don't get any tailwind. Best case scenario, I think, you get no tailwind. Um, worst case scenarios, that turns into a headwind. Right. Because actually you do see a pickup in inflation, you do see a pickup in bond yield, and everything goes into reverse. Um, but the, the, the basic idea was that, you know, as pension funds are all falling over themselves to allocate more to private equity and to venture, um, I think it's over. That game's over. That whole thing is over. So I think the whole duration bill market is over. Equities, bonds, corporate bonds, um, private equity, it's just it's dead. There are not going to be any returns and doing that. For the next 40 years, what's going to work is things that didn't really work so well in the last 40 years. What's that, commodities? That's going to be our new fund. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was was going to see if I could pin you down for a prediction. I'll get you back on in 10 years' time and we can can analyze that one. No, like, I, I, you know, we'll we'll kind of see. I do feel that, um, you know, again, I, I keep saying it. Unusual line items, you know, there are, you know, you don't have to be, it's not all about cyclical risk. It's not all about macroeconomic risk, right? It's not all about equity risk. There are other risk premium you can take. Now, if, you, if you've got a 30 billion um, endowment, okay, then that's, that's a difficult one. Um, uh, that's a very difficult problem to solve. I'm not sure there's that much you can do. Um, but, uh, you know, if, you're, if you can be small and nimble, I just think there's, as I said, this is why we set up the business. It's just incredible. It's an incredibly exciting time to, to, be, um, to be an investor at the moment, I think. I think that's a great note to leave it on. Uh, Dylan, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to go about doing that? Well, I'm kind of on, I, I guess, Twitter. You know, it's, it's, um, I'm kind of new to Twitter, actually. I only really started um, uh, kind of using it um, uh, a few months ago, um, but I, I think it's just a brilliant. A brilliant we'll blow you idea. up a little bit on Twitter then with this one. So Twitter's, Twitter's good. Uh, you know, I take um, uh, direct messages. LinkedIn is good as well. Although I have to tell, I don't use it that much, but I, I do check it every few days. So it will find me if you, if you send me something on on um, on LinkedIn. Um, you know, if you track down my proper rules on Codewood Capital website, we have a couple of um, sample issues of a research. And my email address is all over that. So, you know, you can go and have a look at some of the stuff we've been talking about and read that. And, you know, maybe it will be interesting to you. Maybe it will just go straight into your trash. You know. What's your Twitter um, handle? Uh, Dylan Grice. I'll, uh, I'll link that in the show notes uh, if folks want to get in contact with that. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much for your time. Um, any parting words? <laughs> Um, no, this, this is actually my first ever podcast. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of, um, uh, I, feel like, I feel like it went quite well. Did it go quite well? Did you? That was great. That was great. Yeah. Usually I tell folks after I sign off. But, uh, yeah, you did, you did really well. <laughs> this is a milestone. This is a milestone. <laughs> I'm very happy to have done that. Dylan Grice of Calderwood Capital, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.